Church family, as we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word or the Pew Bible in front of you and turn with me to the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter 3. If this is your first time to be with us at Dawson, we are journeying through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. You'd find that right after Ephesians. So you have Galatians, you have Ephesians, and you have Philippians. We'll be in the third chapter, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. One of the questions that I often receive, maybe I would say even on a, on a weekly basis, is, is a question, just kind of making small talk, hey, David, do you know? Hey, David, do you know? Uh, you know, sometimes that's another pastor in the area. Uh, sometimes that is uh, someone asking me, hey, David, do you know this person? I know Danielle and you, th- y'all lived in this community at one time. Do you know so-and-so there? I, I have found that Usually my default should be yes, but I can't place sometimes. Sometimes I I can't place a a face with the name. I am sure I'm the only person here that has that struggle at times. Uh, Somebody came up to me the other day and he said, Hey, David, I realized that we have mutual friends. And I was so excited to be able to kind of talk with him about this person. And he said, you know, and then he uh, said, you know, so-and-so here. And he could tell, I mean, as much as I tried to hide it, as much as in that moment I tried to instantaneously know who he was talking about, I had no clue who he was talking about. And, and, and this mutual friendship that we had. And then he, then he added to that, he said, well, I saw that we were, we were both friends with this person on Facebook. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, so I, I actually was able to pull up his profile. I'd never seen this person in my life. I, I, I mean, really, I do not know this person. I've had no interaction with this person. But obviously, we have mutual uh, friends. We have mutual acquaintances. We, our paths have gone in similar directions. So we're in the same orbit of one another. And so we're, quote, unquote, friends on Facebook. Now, this is the interesting thing about the day and age we live in, that, that we can be friends in this uh, digital way and, and not have any connection to one another, ne- never have spent any time with one another. We have mutual friends, we have proximity to one another, but that proximity doesn't equal intimacy with one another. I don't know this person. Now, this is true not only in this day and age of 2021 and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, etc. It, it is true spiritually, and it's always been true spiritually. You, you, can, you can know about Jesus and not truly know Jesus. You, you can have mutual friends that know Jesus, but, but you truly not know Jesus. That, that knowing Jesus isn't just religious activity, that the religious activity doesn't equal uh, intimacy with him, that you can know about him and truly not know him. This is the crux of what Paul emphasizes here in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Uh, read along with me. I'm reading from the English Standard Version Starting in verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, I have reason to put confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Listen to this. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, 
I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. One central theme in these 11 verses is the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Paul, he pulls out the spotlight, and he's got one subject that he wants to shine the spotlight on, and that subject is Jesus. He wants us to relish in Jesus. He wants us to rest in Jesus. He wants us to know Jesus. This one word that starts chapter 3 there in verse 1, finally, it's a, it's a word that can be misconstrued. It, it can sound as if Paul is saying, finally, I'm coming to the conclusion here. And it's easy to sort of kind of make fun of Paul. Paul's sort of preacher-like here. He's saying, and finally, I'm coming to end uh, in conclusion. And he goes on for another two chapters right there. You, you heard the story about that kid that was sitting next to his dad in the midst of the sermon. And he looked up at his dad when the preacher said, and in conclusion, and in conclusion. And then the son looked up at his dad and said, dad, what does it mean when the preacher every week says and in conclusion? His dad looked at him and says, absolutely nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And here we have Paul saying, finally, but he doesn't mean, and in conclusion, he actually means so then. It's, it's, it's really more of a transitional phrase. I've told you before that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul is orally dictating this letter. So there are times where Paul goes on these excursions. We had him back in chapter 2, and he was talking about working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Then he comes to verse 18. And you remember in verse 18, he says, Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And instead of him going further into this theme of rejoicing, he goes on an excursion. He says, let me tell you about Timothy and let me tell you about Epaphroditus. They're worthy of your emulation. They're worthy of your praise. He tells us their travel itinerary. And so what Paul is doing here in chapter 3 is he's saying, oh yeah, back to what I was talking to you about. It connects the dots. He's, he's stitching these things together here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's, he's orally dictating this. So he says, finally, and then he connects it back by saying, rejoice in the Lord. You remember what I was telling you in chapter 2, verse 18, about rejoicing in the Lord? I'm coming back to that now. I'm writing the same things to you. It's no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. The same thing that he's writing is a warning. The warning is, is this. We need to heed it. Uh, the church at Philippi needed to heed it. It is that knowing Christ, it far surpasses the false teaching of Paul's day and our day. Paul, Paul has a target here. He, he is saying, watch out for these people. Three descriptions. Look out for the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. Who in the world is Paul talking about? I mean, this pejorative term here, watch out for the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh. What, what world are we in here? Why are we mutilating the flesh? Well, again, we've got to have a little bit of, of Jewish background here. We've got to have a little bit of understanding of the first century church. We've got to understand these words here and what Paul is meaning. Obviously, they're, they're swimming in the false teaching of that day. So, so Paul's able to just draw upon these quick descriptions, and they're like, oh yeah, I know exactly who you're talking about here. If we take them backwards, it gives us a little bit of help to understand the mutilators of the flesh. Well, here, Paul is going to, he's going to hone in on people that put all of their faith in Jesus 
plus circumcision. It seems really far removed from us, but the earliest Christian heresy is a, a, a Christian heresy known as, as the Judaizers, and they are going around in those early churches. You can read about them in Acts 15, in Galatians chapter 2, and right here. And they say this simply, place your faith in Jesus plus, and that's the plus that gets them in trouble. Place your faith in Jesus plus. And Paul says, hey, these people that are coming in here saying, place your faith in Jesus plus be circumcised. Place your faith in Jesus plus be a person who's under Jewish law. That, that, that actually, that plus actually subtracts from the gospel. Watch out for them. They're evildoers. Watch out for them. They're dogs. It's a pejorative term, dog. And we have dogs. They live in our house. They sleep in our bed. That is just absolutely unheard of in that first century world. Dogs were sort of coyote-like, scavengers. They roamed that day. They, they would prey upon the weak and the vulnerable animals and the carcasses that were there. That's what dogs were doing. They were eating the garbage that was left out here. That's what they're doing. So Paul, he's, he's sliding these false teachers that hold on because dogs would have been, they would have been unclean in that day. So he gives a slight little, uh, little cut at those false teachers. But he's also saying the false teachers, they're roaming about. And they're, they're, they're wanting to feed off of the vulnerable. They're, they're wanting to feed off the easily distracted. And he says, watch out for them. They're evildoers. They're mutilators of the flesh. And he says, verse 3, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. So for you to know Jesus, it isn't Jesus plus your circumcision. Actually, when you place your faith in Jesus, you're circumcised, not in a physical way, but in an inward spiritual way, as the Spirit of God penetrates your heart and lives inside of you. This is what it means to be circumcised at the heart. To worship Jesus is an inward spiritual circumcision. That's where we place our faith, not Jesus plus circumcision, but Jesus alone. It's the theme of the gospel. If you miss this, you miss the gospel. We should never tire of reminding ourselves that when we talk about the gospel, we need to use the word alone, 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 as many times as we can. Because we're tempted to say just what these Judaizers, just what these false teachers did, Jesus plus, Jesus plus. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, would say, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What does it mean to know Jesus? It means that you place your faith in him alone. You place your faith in Jesus alone, through his grace alone. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So when you add the pluses you subtract from the gospel. Now, we, we're, we're far away from Jewish false teaching, but I'm here to tell you that they are still those that roam about saying it is not enough for you to know Jesus through faith in him alone. You need to add to that. Uh, yeah, you can know Jesus by placing your faith in him, but you got to be a member of the right church. And if you're a member of the right church, then you truly know Jesus. If you're a member of, of the right church, the, the remnant church is the one true church, then you'll, you'll know Jesus. Or if you can place your faith in Jesus, but you got to be baptized. And if you're baptized in the right church, then you know Jesus. And so what is this in all of the ways? It's adding to the alones. The Reformation, 16th century, talks about the solas. Sola scriptura. Sola fide. 
So all of these solos, all of these alones remind us that our salvation rests in Jesus alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. I was 13 years old. I didn't understand what the gospel, I, I, I didn't have a concept of what it means to know Jesus. Someone came to me and said, David, if you were to die, would you go to heaven? I didn't know how to answer that question. I was kind of thinking to myself, do I deserve to go to heaven? That, that was how I thought of it. I, I kind of pictured that when I died, that I would be in this long line going to heaven. And that in that long line, I'd be looking around, seeing who I knew. And I just kind of imagined in my 13-year-old self that in that long line, I would get to the, to the entrance to the pearly gates. And there are some angels there that have one question. And the question that they were going to ask me is, is what have you done to deserve entrance into perfect communion with God? What have you done to deserve entrance into heaven? And I think in my mind, I think in that point, I would have said, I needed to pull out a religious resume. And I needed to say things like, well, you know, I've really tried to be a good person. I, I've tried to do good things. I've, I've tried to, to, to be a good person. I've tried not to do bad things. And, and hopefully my, my good things would be better than my bad. They would weigh more than my bad things. And, and, and what, what I heard, which is this glorious truth, is, is that, that the, when, when you are asked, what have you done to deserve entrance into heaven? Do you know what the gospel answer always is? Nothing. I've, I've done nothing to deserve entrance. Not a nothing. There's nothing that I can do to earn entrance into this place because I'm a sinner. But I know someone. I know someone who has done everything. I know someone who has lived a perfect life. I know someone by faith who has died for my sins. While I can do nothing to deserve entrance, he has done everything. So I imagine myself before that line in heaven, and I'm asked, uh, what have you done to deserve entrance into heaven? And my answer is nothing, but I know him. I know him. You, you've heard that his name is the wonderful counselor. Some people call him the prince of peace. Some people call him Jesus, but I call him Lord. Lord, I call him Savior. That's our answer. That's our hope. That's the gospel. Not what we have done lately for him, but what he has done completely for us. This is what we rest in. Not that at the end of our life, we might do enough and sort of meet God halfway in our strivings, but he's come all the way to us in his son's perfect life, in his son's death. And so when we come to the end of our life and we say, do we know Jesus? The question is, has there been a time where you've placed your faith in him and him alone? They were people 2,000 years ago that said, that's not enough. And there are people today that say, that's not enough. And we run from that and we rest in him and him alone. Knowing Jesus can have an obstacle and that's that obstacle of false teaching. But also notice here in this passage that knowing Christ, it far surpasses the religious resume even of Paul. In verses 4 through 6, in the copy of your God's Word, in, in the copy of God's Word that you have, I mean, you could write uh, verses 4 through 6 is, is, is Paul's religious silver spoon. What, what he describes here is, is him before Jesus, him before knowing him. And he says, I've got seven things to tell you how I placed my, my identity and the activity that I did as a religious person. I, I had it all. I had a religious silver spoon. I, I was circumcised on the eighth day. 
which, which just simply means is that he didn't have a, he didn't have a, a Ishmaelite conversion and be circumcised as a 13-year-old. There were people that were converted into Judaism, and they were, they were circumcised as, as an adult. Paul is saying, hey, just like God told Abraham in Genesis 17, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm a religious insider. Secondly, he says in verse 5, I was of the people of Israel. You know what that means? He's ethnically a member of the Israelites. He's saying, my mom was not an Ishmaelite. My, my dad was not an Edomite. Some of you remember the Harry Potter books, and you remember that, that language of pure blood and, and mud blood. He, he's saying here, I'm a pure blood. My, my, my lineage is purely of, of that Israelite lineage. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the most prominent tribes there in verse 5. They're faithful after the death of Solomon. Uh, King Saul emerges from the tribe of Benjamin. He goes to the next item on his religious resume. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, verse 5. What in the world does that mean? Well, you have in that day Jewish people living outside of Israel. They're, they're in the, what was called the diaspora all across the Greco-Roman world. And guess what? You would have ethnically Jewish people that couldn't speak Hebrew. They had lost touch of their culture. I mean, this happens in our world. You, you, get, you get removed from your culture. You get removed from your language. And Paul says, not me. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I got Hebrew down. I got Aramaic down. The cultures of the Hebrew people, that's me. What, what he's doing is he's saying, look at my religious resume. Ethnically, check. I got it. Culturally, check. I got it. Tribally, cult, check. I've got it. Law observantly, check. I'm in. He has three more items here. He's not finished. He's building his resume before Jesus. And he says, I'm a Pharisee. Uh, this is the sect, S-E-C-T, the, the religious sect that was most uh, faithful to maintaining, like scrupulously concerned with maintaining the religious laws. They would add hundreds upon hundreds of minute details to the law. This is what Paul is. He, he is he's in. He's committed all the way. He's not only a sort of pew-sitting Pharisee. He's active. He, he was a persecutor of the church as for zeal. Remember the first cameo that we have of Paul? He wouldn't even call Paul then. He was called Saul in the book of Acts. And he's watching with approval as Stephen was martyred for this faith on his way to Damascus. You remember what Paul was doing in that time when he was knocked off of his horse? He was going to imprison Christians. So what, what, what Paul is saying is, is I've, got a, I've got a lot of religious activity in my background here. He says, finally, that under righteousness, under the law, he was blameless. Is he saying he's perfect? He's saying, no, he's not perfect. But Sabbath keeping, check it off. Ritual cleanliness, check it off. Food laws, check it off. He, he was all in. But what he's saying to us is it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. All of this religious activity, when he looks back upon this prestigious resume of a religious silver spoon that was born in his, uh, that he was born with, when he, uh, the outset of his life here, he says, "What is it worth in comparison to knowing Jesus?" Verse seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Really strong word. That's the PG-13 word right there. In order that I may gain Christ. So he's contrasting. He's saying, verses 4 through 6, here's all of my religious resume. This is all of my activity before Jesus. And it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. I was doing all of these things, but when I knew Jesus by faith, I looked back upon that and I counted all as loss. I counted all as rubbish. 
He's comparing, he's comparing what it means to, to look at the spotlight of Jesus and to look at his past and say, it, it doesn't compare whatsoever. And Paul probably lost some things. When Saul becomes Paul, he, he most likely was disinherited from his family. He was probably most likely disowned by his family. There would have been implications of his inheritance that he was disowned from. He probably didn't have. I am sure he was alienated from friends. I'm sure he was alienated from uh, family members. And he says, all of that, all of the honor, all the comfort, all the status, all the benefits, it's rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus. Rubbish can be translated garbage. It can be translated excrement. He is using the strongest words here to describe his identity in Jesus compared to his religious identity before Jesus. And what he is saying is he was in uh, all of this religious activity that he did. It wasn't enough. It didn't equal intimacy with Jesus. Now, this can feel so foreign from us. I mean, you're sitting here in the pews thinking, David, none of us are trying to put our identity in our Jewish background. So what in the world does this have to do with any of us here? Now listen, this is closer to home than we might first think. Because especially those of us that have grown up in, in religious households, which is good, with a lot of religious activity, we can make the mistake that our proximity to the things of God equals intimacy with him. We can make the mistake that knowing about Jesus is actually knowing Jesus, or that, that our mother's faith or our father's faith or our attendance equals knowing Jesus. And, and we need to understand that, that Paul is saying, no, 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 no. All of this religious activity did not equal knowing Jesus. And all of my religious activity, apart from faith in Jesus, is not enough. One clarion call that he is making here. And to bring it home a little bit, if Paul was writing in Birmingham, Alabama in 2021, he, he might tweak this a little bit. And, and he, might say, he might say something like this. Hey, listen, I was... I was born on the cradle roll of First Baptist County seat, Alabama. I was dedicated to the Lord in my home church when I was six months old. I was an RA, Bible driller, president of the youth group, but I didn't know Jesus. And all of the proximity to the things of God was not enough. All of my pew sitting was not enough. All of my identity as a good religious boy wasn't enough. You know, you can be doing all the right church-going things and be on a one-way street to hell itself because doing is not enough. And doing in His name doesn't equal knowing Him. I hope you know that. I think sometimes, especially in our context of the Southeast, where we're grateful for all of these good things of a heritage in the Lord, and all of these good things that prayerfully point us to Jesus, and they're all good, 
But when they become ultimate things and we confuse doing these things and what is actually giving us an identity in Jesus, we, we've, missed, we, we've missed the mark. And sometimes, sometimes we need to hear that, that we're sinners who need to be saved. And that all of our doing and all of our past doesn't save us automatically. And we have to come to that place in our life where, where we ultimately repent of our sin and trust in Jesus. And he says in verse 9 that all of this knowing happens when we place our faith in him. When we place our faith in him to receive the forgiveness of our sins, we have a, we have a grand transfer that occurs. And this is what Paul relishes in the rest of this little section here. He talks about not having a righteousness of his own. So there's a transfer that occurs when you place your faith in Jesus. He, he takes your sin upon him, the perfect one, and he forgives you of your sin, and he, and he gives you his perfect righteousness as a sinner. So as a sinner, you give your sin to the perfect one, and the perfect one gives his righteousness to you, a sinner. His perfect obedience becomes our perfect obedience because we're perfectly obedient? No, but because he lives in us and we know him. His victory over death becomes our victory over death because we're really good people? No, because he has accomplished what we cannot accomplish through his resurrection. And to know him, Paul goes into this great language about, I want to share in his sufferings. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that as followers of Jesus, the path of growth in Jesus is always going to be the path of suffering. It always will be. Each and every one of us who know him, we must decide to to take up our cross and to follow after him, to deny self and to be found in him. And there's an intimacy to knowing Jesus that is more than intellectual assent. It is more than checking off all of the boxes. It is knowing him at the very depth of our heart. It is walking with him. It is allowing that glorious image of of the spotlight shining upon Jesus and saying, in comparison to Jesus, that everything else is rubbish. That that's how glorious he is. That's how amazing that he is. And my question to you is, is not do you know about him, because I think we know about him in this room, but my question is, do you know him? My question to you this morning is not are you in proximity to Jesus, because I know you're in proximity to the things of Jesus, but, but do you know him? My question to you this morning isn't what, what is your religious resume of, of activity that you think is going to grant you access to eternal communion with him, because it's not enough. It wasn't for Paul. It's not for you. It's not for me. But do you know him? Has there been a time in your life where you've trusted in the finished work of the gospel and placed your faith in him? How you answer that makes all the difference, not only now, but forevermore. How, my friend, do you answer that question? Do you know him? Let us pray.